Well, good morning, New Life Church. Today we start a new sermon series. Last week we finished our series on our mission emphasis, and I'm sure you were blessed. I know I was as we focused on the Great Commission and the task of making disciples. And now with the new sermon series, we see how that we can practically do this as we are grounded in the gospel and as we see the mission of Jesus being unfolded uh, for all of us through this narrative which is um, recorded for us in the gospel of Luke. Um, so someone has called the gospel of Luke a book filled with good news for everybody. And you'll notice the sermon series subtitle is The Mission of Jesus. So the fact that Jesus fulfilled the mission of God to bring salvation to the whole world is indeed good news for everybody. If Jesus failed in this mission, we would have no hope. Um, so Luke's emphasis here is on the universality of Jesus Christ and his salvation. Um, one of the theme verses is Luke 2 verse 10, where we see the angels speak good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people, not to some people, but to all people. So for the next few months, I would encourage you to take notes and take advantage of this exposition of Luke as we hear the, the narrative of Dr. Luke's record of the sovereignty of God in the ministry of Jesus in his death and his resurrection. So turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. This morning, my job is to introduce this gospel to you, to lay a foundation um, and introduce to you some of the main characters and the main themes. So we'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 7 this morning. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Well, let's pray before we study God's word together. Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity, Lord, we have to study it, that we have to unfold it, that we have to examine it. We don't just follow a religion blindly, Lord. We follow your revealed word and we need to know what it tells us, what it teaches us so that we can obey it and follow it accordingly. So we pray, Lord, as we go through this gospel, we pray that you would give us eyes to see. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and that you would give us hearts, Lord, to, to obey. Father, we do pray that you would help us to be the, the doers of your word. So we, we need your help, Lord, as we go through this sermon. And you have told us where we 
lack wisdom to pray and to ask, and we need this wisdom, Lord. We need your spirit, Lord, to, to help us understand how relevant this is for all of us. So we do pray that your spirit will do the work amongst us, Lord, and show us more of the wonderful, the wonderful depths of the gospel. So teach us today, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So the human author of this gospel is a Greek doctor who converted to the Jewish religion. So after his conversion to Christianity, he became an intimate friend and companion of Paul and accompanied him in some of his uh, missionary journeys. And we see that his name is mentioned in um, some of these journeys in Colossians, as well as in Timothy and in Philemon. Uh, in fact, Dr. Luke is mentioned only three times in those, in those passages in, in the scriptures. But his key message is Luke chapter 19, verse 10, which says, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. So he presents Christ as the compassionate Son of God who came to live among sinners, to love them, to help them, and to, to die for them. And he wrote with, with in mind of a careful historian with the heart of a loving physician. Let's not forget, he was a, a doctor. So he was very well trained and equipped to be able to record this for us. The Gospel of Luke we see here was written for Theophilus. Now we don't know much about Theophilus. Um, his, his name means lover of God. So he probably was a Roman official who had trusted Christ and now needed to be established in the faith. He was probably a young Christian. It's also possible that Theophilus was a seeker after truth who was being taught the, the Christian message by um, Dr. Luke. We see in verse 4 there, Luke says to Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So whether he was a believer or not, he was being taught the, the scriptures. And Luke's whole point was so that he would have certainty that the things he was being taught were indeed truth. They weren't just fables or they weren't just legends, but they were indeed truth. So we see the word there, in, uh, the word translated as taught in, in verse 4 comes from the, the Greek word um, katechio, where we get our English word catechism from. And the word catechism simply means someone who is being taught the basics of Christianity. If you were in, a, in an Anglican church or uh, maybe in a Methodist church before, you went to a catechism class. And they're just classes that teach us the, the basics of Christianity. So he was being taught. Theophilus was being taught the basics of Christianity. And Luke we know was not an eyewitness of the events recorded here in the gospel. But because he was an educated doctor, he himself searched out all the information that he needed. And we know it wasn't just by his own ability. The Spirit of God used him to write an accurate and an orderly narrative of the, the life and the ministry and the message of Jesus Christ. Remember, at this time in history, there were, there were many things that were being written. 
And there were many things that were written that were not true, especially when it came to the, the ministry and the life of Jesus Christ. And the Spirit of God saw it necessary for an outsider who wasn't part of the, the inner gang, the inner core in the beginning, to be able to write um, an educated narrative for other people to know for certain of the, of the truth, the basics of Christianity. So we know Luke um, was a researcher. He had researched meticulously his material. And he had interviewed eyewitnesses. And um, he listened to those who had ministered the word that were with Jesus at that time. And of course, most importantly, he was guided by the, the Holy Spirit to pen these words. This, these aren't just his words. He was inspired by God to write them. But you'll notice that the Gospel of Luke doesn't begin with the birth of Jesus. It begins before the birth of Jesus. It doesn't just begin with the birth of John the Baptist. In fact, it points us back to the, to the Old Testament and to the prophecies and the promises of the Old Testament and how they are accomplished and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Very necessary for him to have done that, especially for the, the Jewish community at that time. So these were indeed, this was indeed an, a work to show to the world that this was prophecies fulfilled by Jesus Christ himself. So the Gospel of Luke begins with the Old Testament. And it begins with prophecies that God had made long ago. And that's one way that God tells us that he's not just at that point in time beginning to work for his people a salvation. It wasn't just for the people in the New Testament. But he has been working his salvation not only from the, the, the foundation of the world, but throughout history, throughout history. And when we say that word history, I want you to think of it as in two words, his story. That's a lovely way to think of it. Whole of history belongs to God. It is his story. And that's what Luke is wanting us to see here, the big picture. And the gospel of Luke connects it for us. And we'll see clearly as we continue to study this, this gospel. But today we're just going to look at the first seven verses. And if you look at the first four verses of Luke, it's his introduction. It's his prologue, prologue to the rest of the book. And then he begins to tell the story of this obscure priest and his wife, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And over the last month, we learned that God's purpose needs to be our purpose. In fact, it's become our purpose. He's given us a mission. And we are all to be making disciples of Jesus Christ. And we cannot do that unless we know the message of the, the mission. We cannot do that unless we are able to communicate the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of my greatest hopes and one of my prayers through this series is that we as a congregation will become increasingly over time a, a gospel-saturated and gospel-centered church. And pray with me about that. And what I mean by that is that, a, that we as a congregation would be saturated with the knowledge of the, the truth of the gospel. And it would be driven deep into our, into our life and deep into our ministry by the, the power of the Spirit of God. And it would motivate us to live and to, to serve the gospel 
amongst the people that we know and um, the people who need to know Christ. And I think what better way to learn how to be gospel preoccupied and, and gospel centered than to study the, the gospel of Luke. And so I hope over the course of our time together, we would become gospel centered, gospel saturated, gospel preoccupied and gospel proclaimers as a, as a congregation. And more and more, I believe that if, it, if we were, it would probably impact our relationships in our families, you know, in our congregation, and in our communities as we, as we bear witness of the gospel. As it's not just an afterthought, that very much part of our lives. It would affect our lives completely. It will affect our relationships completely. And so I'm excited about this journey that we will start this morning. And as we do this morning, I want to draw your attention to four things. The first thing I want to draw your attention to is the Christian gospel begins with what God has done for us. That's what the gospel starts with. So Luke, Ma Luke makes it clear in this passage that the story of God's redemption in Jesus Christ begins with a focus on what God has accomplished amongst us. And we see that in verse 1. Look there, he says to Theophilus, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative... Of what? What is he talking about? A narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So as I was saying, many people have compiled narratives. But Luke wanted to make sure that this was an accurate narrative. And when Dr. Luke begins to catalog in the next two chapters the things that have been accomplished among us, you will see that those things first are accomplished by God himself. Not by man, but by God himself. It's not a record of what we've accomplished as people, as humans. It's a record of what God has accomplished through his son, Jesus Christ. You will see that this is a record of what God has prophesied. That he, what he would do in the Old Testament. Coming to pass in the very time of, of Luke and, and his friends and their contemporaries that were alive at that point. And so Luke is drawing our attention when he says, Theophilus, I want to tell you what's happening and what has happened in our midst and, and what is happening in, in our time. He, he's not just saying, I want to give you a report of yesterday's news. He's not just saying, I want to make a catalog of, of some stuff that has happened. He's saying, I want to tell you what God is doing in fulfillment of his prophecies and his promises in the Old Testament. So he's pointing us to the very character of God. And it's so important for us to appreciate that focus. We need to remember the gospel begins with the character of God. It begins with the focus on what God has done, of what God has accomplished in agreement with his word, as he has promised. He is a faithful covenant keeper. Beforehand, he had promised and prophesied what was going to happen in the, in the ages to come, in the coming of his son, the Messiah. People were expecting a Messiah. And now in Luke's time, he has fulfilled this. He has accomplished those promises and those prophecies. And the gospel begins here. Now, why is that so important? 
And it's very important. Please, if you don't hear anything else, just hear this morning. You know, there are many messages going out in different churches. Even people who call themselves evangelical churches. And so often the content of that message is not what God has accomplished. Not what God has done. The content of that message is not God's focused. The content of that message is not God's glory. It's not about the gospel. It's not about Jesus Christ. The content of many false messages today is focused on something else completely. And that is man. It is not about God. It's about man. I remember as a young teenager attending church, very involved in my youth group, and we were being taught how to share the gospel. We were being taught how to evangelize, and we would go out into the city, and we would one-on-one um, -on -one speak to people about Jesus. And we got this little booklet that we were studying and that we were using as, as a tool. And the very first point in this little booklet that we had to share with, with unbelievers was, first tell them that God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life. Now that sounds nice, isn't it? I mean, people would like to hear that. I mean, that's attractive, isn't it? But that's not the gospel message. The gospel message starts with God. It doesn't start with man. And like I said, unfortunately, too much of the gospel that is preached today, that is professed to be the gospel of Jesus Christ, ends up starting with man. And it's not about man, it's about what God has accomplished. It is about God. The gospel begins with God. It begins with his character and what he has fulfilled. And Luke is putting things in perspective for us here by pointing to God's accomplishments, not ours. It's all about God. This is his story. This is his plan. This is his purpose being accomplished in the world. And Luke is drawing our attention to that this morning. And what we learn from this is is that the Christian gospel begins with God and his accomplishments on our behalf. Now, there's a second thing I want you to see as well. And we see it especially in verse 4. The Christian faith is founded upon truth. The Christian faith is founded upon truth. Before Luke gets to the once upon a time, in verse 5, he, he tells Theophilus why he is writing the book. Here's why I'm writing a book. Verse 4, here's what he says. That you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. That you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. In other words, Luke believes that it is absolutely essential that we understand the truth on which Christianity is founded. This is not just a, a fairy tale. That we understand the basis of the gospel message in the light and ministry of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And therefore we understand that this is truth. We understand his claims are indeed something that came to pass. That his claims are in fact rooted in human history. This is not just a fable. This is truth. And there are facts and there is evidence that point to concrete things that have happened, that form the basis of what God is doing in his plan of 
salvation. And so Luke's work of this gospel is not just a story. It's a true story. It is his story. It contains history. And so he says to Theophilus and to all his readers, I want you to be certain about the basis of the message that you've heard proclaimed to you. And so I'm going to write it down. I'm going to write it down. Based on eyewitness accounts, based on the proclamation of the apostles themselves, I'm going to write down the things that you could confirm to this day. So this message is indeed an accurate record. In other words, he's saying that the Christian faith is founded on truth. Notice the language he uses in verse 2 there. He says, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. So they did what? They saw, isn't it? They were eyewitnesses. They, they saw with their, their eyes. Look at the rest of the verse. And ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So they saw these events, and then, and then they did what? Look at the rest of the verse. They spoke about them. They spoke about them. They proclaimed them. They preached about them. And then Luke says in verse 3, it seemed good to me to write an orderly account of them. So notice there, they saw, they spoke, and he wrote. Notice that. They saw, they spoke, and he wrote. Now what's that all about? Well, Luke is saying to Theophilus, I'm telling you about something that people who are alive now have seen with their own eyes. They have proclaimed with their, their mouth so that it may be more certain for you and preserved for generations to come. I'm going to write it down. I'm going to keep it in a volume for all time because the truth matters. This is the, the written word. I'm sure at some point in your childhood you played the broken telephone game where somebody whispers something into your ear and then you have to say the same message to your friend next to you and they have to take that same message and whisper it and it goes around in a big circle until the last person tells the message. More often than not, that is a completely different message to what you began with, isn't it? And that's the point of this preservation of this record so that it would be, remain accurate, that it wouldn't be lost in translation, that it wouldn't be lost by verbal tales and stories that has been preserved for us. It is the truth, and it is truth that, that matters. And that is something our, our generation, unfortunately, has, has a hard time grasping. Now, our, our generation doesn't like truth. Our generation doesn't like truth. At least it, it claims not to, to like truth. They, they are happy to substitute truth with their, their own man-centered philosophies. And people go so far as to say that there is no such thing as, as truth. And so all around us, we see a claim that truth is not essential to Christianity. Now, just this week, I saw an interview with, a, with the actor Will Smith. And in this interview, the interviewer said, now Will, it, it is rumored that you are involved or enamored with Scientology. Scientology is a, is a cult 
um, that celebrities are so often in, involved in, especially in California. And the interviewer said, it's rumored that you're involved or enamored with Scientology, but Will, you grew up, you grew up a Baptist. How do you reconcile these things? And listen to his answer. He says, well, you know, I'm a student of world religion. I was raised in a Baptist household. I went to a Catholic school. But the ideas of the Bible are 98% the same ideas of Scientology. 98% the same ideas of Hinduism. 98% the same ideas of Buddhism. He went on to say, I grew up in a neighborhood where there were Muslims and Christians and Jews and, and Hindus and atheists and, and others. And I believe that any way someone approaches God, if it works for them, that's wonderful. I think that everyone has truth. We all come, we all call the same God by different names. And anyway, my grandmother taught me ultimately it was about being a good person and doing good things. Now that's a very confused answer. But here's the point I'm trying to make. You know, if, 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 if Will Smith had said to Dr. Luke, it doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you do good things, it doesn't matter about truth. Don't get hung up on, on doctrines and, and truths and the claims that, that Jesus made. Don't get hung up on those things. I think Luke would have said, fine, but understand you're not a Christian. Because Christians believe this. This is essential to Christianity. The truths that have been preserved in the Word of God. We cannot call ourselves a Christian if we don't believe the, the truths of the, of the Bible. We do things because of our faith not in place of our, our faith. Remember, it's the root. The root must be in Christ first before there is fruit. You cannot do good things to please God if you are not his child. First comes the root and then comes the, the fruit. You cannot work your way to heaven by doing good things. And that's the truth of the scriptures, folks. It's the truth recorded for us, as we will see here in the Gospel of Luke. When people come along to you and say, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe. What matters is doing good things. They are trying to change the truth of God into a lie. And we see that in Romans chapter 1, verse 25. These people change the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Truth cannot be redefined. And Satan wants us to change the truth of God into a lies. Remember, he is the father of all lies. And he will do everything he can to twist and pervert the Scriptures. But we have a duty, folks, to remain faithful to what the Scriptures teach, not to what man's philosophies are. And Luke is saying, you need to understand that the Christian faith is founded upon truth, not feelings. Remember what we learned from John. Belief affects our behavior. It's not the other way around. 
It's not our behavior affects our belief. It is our belief in the truth of the scriptures, that our belief in Jesus Christ. We just sang that song about what we believe. That belief should affect our behavior, not in place of it. Christians do the things we do because we believe the things we believe. Because the things that we believe are true. They are based in truth. And so there's a connection between truth and, and faith and, and practice. And we'll see that being played out in the Gospel of Luke. And if you break the chain between any of those, the Christian faith falls apart. And we just saw that in Matthew 23 when we looked at the Pharisees and the, the scribes who were hypocrites. They tried to be people of faith, but they had no belief in the truth of God's word. They had twisted it and, convert, and perverted it. And so Luke is telling us that the Christian faith is founded upon truth. And it's important for us to know. It's important for us to, to learn. It's important for us to believe these things and to understand that they are not fables. They are truth, events that really did happen. My third point this morning. The Christian story reveals an irony. Let me explain that. Look at the paradox in, in verse 5. Look at the irony in verse 5. In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Now, if you had been reading the weekly edition of the Jerusalem Times in those days, no doubt you would have never have read a front page article about Zechariah. He was just an ordinary priest. But you probably would have read a lot about Herod, who was the, the king at that time. So similar to all the, the news we get of politicians today, Herod was, was just like that. You would have probably found him on the front pages of the paper a lot. He wasn't a, a good king. He had many bad things to, to people to gossip about. And because of his position and because of his, um, his, his bad conduct, you would have assumed that Herod was far more important than, than Zechariah was. But not in God's economy. Not in God's economy. Herod was a pawn. Even though he was a king, he was a pawn. He was a pawn on the, the chessboard of, of God. This unknown priest, Zechariah, he was the chosen instrument that God was going to use to work through. Not the king, but this priest. Unknown, obscure priest. And you understand that this is always the way it looks. In God's economy, folks. Not in man's economy. The world looks at faithful Believers, obscure believers, marginal believers, and, and, and the world will say that we're not important. We're not important. And the reality, the really important things that are going on in the world are going on in churches that are faithful to the gospel. Not in, in Washington, D.C. Or, or London or, or Moscow or, or Beijing where the world focuses their attention on. The really important things are going on in the lives of those who are committed believers who the Lord has chosen to be his instruments for the propagation of the gospel, to fulfill his mission, 
to the building up of his, his kingdom. That is really what is important. And the world may think that the world may think that, that we are unimportant, but in God's economy, the kings are the ones that are small. And God's people are the instruments that he uses for his glory. Now I shared at a pastor's meeting recently a bit of advice that I got from an older and wiser minister early in my ministry. Um, this minister said to me, Gareth, if you want the applause of man, join a circus, not the ministry. Join a circus. And he was right. He was right. And I think it's true for all of us who are committed Christians. And we're not, we should not be looking for the world's applause or the world's acclaim. Look how good we are. It doesn't matter whether the world gives us acclaim or not. What matters is what God thinks of us, isn't it? What matters is the fact that we serve Christ and we know nothing that we do for Christ or for the gospel is wasted in God's economy. And it's an irony here, isn't it? It's a paradox. Nothing would have, nobody would have paid attention to little Zechariah. But he was the one that God was planning to use. And Herod was the, was the pawn in all of this. My fourth point, the Christian life entails both faithfulness and trials. This is my last point. And not only do we see that the Christian gospel begins with God's accomplishment, that the Christian faith is founded upon truth, that the Christian story reveals this, this amazing irony in God's providence where he uses the weak to confound the strong and the obscure to confound the, the famous and to advance his purposes. But we see that the Christian life entails both faithfulness and trials. And we will see that clearly in this gospel as we go through it. And don't you love the way that Zechariah and Elizabeth are described in verse 6? Look there. They were righteous before God. They walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statues of the Lord. So Luke is telling us there's something special about this couple. Luke is telling his Jewish readers, look, these were godly saints. They loved the law of Moses. They lived according to the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. They walked with integrity. These were committed believers. And he's saying to his Jewish readers, but look at verse 7. Just out of nowhere, this verse is there. They had no child. They had no child. The story is developing here. Can you sense it? It's strange, isn't it? They loved the Lord. They walked in his ways. They were faithful. They served his kingdom. They gave their all from the inside out. They were genuine, committed Christians. But they were going through the most grievous trials here, folks. The most grievous trials. It is difficult for us today even to begin to understand the, the trial of childlessness for a Hebrew believer in the days of, of Christ or even before, before that time. It's hard for us to understand it, to, to try and imagine it. But as grievous as that trial is, 
And it's a, it's a generational trial, which we know all too well. And there, there may be people even in this, in this room right now that are wrestling with a similar trial. And it's still hard for us to get our heads into how difficult a trial this must have been for, for a Hebrew. But isn't it interesting that over and over in the Bible, starting back with Abraham, there is this particular trial. Parents who were barren. Abraham longs for a son. And when God says to Abraham, I'm your shield and, and your reward, I'm your inheritance, Abraham responds, Lord, what does it matter if, if I don't have a son to, to give it to? Remember Hannah's prayers when she begs God for a, a child in, in 1 Samuel. Or Manoah as his wife praying that God would give them a son. Over and over we see this in the Bible. Remarkable stories of God's purposes in the overall plan of redemption begin with a childless couple. And often the couple is advanced in years. You see how the story is developing. Why? Why does God do this? And why is this important for us here in the Gospel of Luke to see? Well, I think there's two things that we need to understand right here in the beginning of this Gospel. And the first thing that we see is that God's power is perfected in weaknesses. God's power is perfected in our weaknesses. God's glory is displayed in our weaknesses. It teaches us that God's power is there for all of us if we would humble ourselves to his hand. And what better way to show that this is a story that God himself is going to accomplish than to point to two human beings who not only don't even have children, but don't have a generation to pass the blessing on to. Now how dependent is this plan upon the intervention of the Lord? How in the world is man going to accomplish this? It's that dependent. It's totally dependent on God. And our weaknesses will not accomplish God's will, God's plan. But His strength will. His strength will. God's power is perfected in weaknesses. And that's what we learn. That's what we learn here. But we also learn, folks, that wonderful, God-fearing, Bible-believing, gospel-treasuring, Christ-exalting Christians go through trials. We are not immune to suffering. We spoke about that this morning in our class, in our parenting class. Just because you have faith doesn't mean you are exempt from trials. I remember a lady who came to our church in Johannesburg in South Africa. I remember Pastor Doug and I were sitting next to her and counseling her and she was crying and she was telling us that she had been to a church that kept on telling her that the reason that she is so sick is because she doesn't have enough faith. I mean, what a terrible lie. What a terrible lie, folks. That is a false gospel. We see a godly couple here who had faith that probably is better than ours. And they were going through a terrible trial. 
this lie. The greatest and godliest saints in the scripture had lives that were filled with trials. And whether your trial is barrenness, whether in your own heart you ache for a child of your own and the Lord hasn't blessed you yet with that, or whether you suffered a tremendous bereavement or perhaps there's a disease that you're struggling with, a physical problem that you've been battling for many years and you just can't seem to, to catch your breath or whether there's some other problems, relationship issues you're having, but whatever trial it is that you are going through, I want you to see this, folks. Luke is saying that the Christian life entails faithfulness and trials. Faithfulness and trials. And even if God has called you to a trial, I want to tell you this. There is no place like trial for God to prove himself to you. His power is perfected in weakness. Hear me, folks. This is where God meets us. Not when we're driving fancy cars, but when we are struggling and suffering. The world will look and see how great our God is because we trust in Him. Our faith is in Him. Not in ourselves. Our faith is made perfect in our weaknesses. And that is one of the great stories that we will see throughout the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to see it unfold in the life of this couple next week. We're going to see that story develop. And now in their case, they were going to be given a son. But that's not how God always answers prayers. You remember the Apostle Paul prayed to the Lord three times, take away this thorn in my flesh. And God's word to Paul was not, good Paul, you've suffered a lot, you've done enough, your time is over, I'm going to take the thorn away. No, his word to him was simply this, my grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. That may be God's word to you this morning. His word to you may not be relief from your circumstance by his intervention, although that may be his answer. His answer to you may be relief in your circumstance by his all-sufficient grace because God does not comfort us by simply changing our circumstances. He comforts us by giving us his son, Jesus Christ, so that one day, he will take us to a place where there is no more suffering, where there is no more trial, where there is no more sorrow. And God begins to teach us that truth in this great book, that his grace is sufficient, that Jesus is all we need. And we have much to learn, my friends. And I pray that you will be blessed as we study this book together. My time is over. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your son. We pray the Holy Spirit will open our eyes and he will open our hearts to the, the glorious gospel and your glorious son who came 
to save us from our sins. And thank you, Lord, that we have peace with God through your son. We have been reconciled. And the greatest problem that we would ever face has been taken care of because of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, one day we have that hope that there will be no more pain, there will be no more crying, there will be no more sadness. And it's a living hope, Lord, that one day we will be with you where there will be perfect peace away from this sin-corrupted world. We look forward to the day and we pray, Lord, come, come, Lord Jesus. But while we're here, Lord, we pray that you would equip us with truth, that our lives would be grounded on truth, that we would be like that wise man whose house stands firm when the winds come, when the trials come, when the storms come and the rain beats against that house, that we will stand firm because we are grounded on truth. So equip us, Lord God, may your spirit teach us that we would be instruments used for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.